0: Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Ken Jeffers, an 80-year-old Baha'i, who now resides at the Desert Rose Baha'i Institute. He's just started the World Peace Movement Project that promotes the Baha'i statement called The Promise of World Peace. I started the interview by asking Ken where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there.
1: I grew up in Wisconsin. First five years in in Wapaka, Wisconsin. Then we moved to New London, Wisconsin, where I went from kindergarten all the way through graduation and high school. What was it like? Well, that was in the 1930s, right during the Depression. So I suppose it was like for my family the way it was for most families. We never had any money. My father was employed. He had a good job. He was a printer. But part of the problem was he didn't get a check for four years in the mid-30s. So you'd just live on, uh, oh, they called them do-bills then, I guess you'd call it almost like barter now, where he would work and get have to take a couple of the dollars from this store and a couple of dollars from the shoe store and so on. And with eight kids, that was uh, plenty difficult. So, But interestingly, we didn't seem to think that we were poor, I guess because everybody else was, and so we got along fine, and you know, I was a big garden, and and so we had food and a lot of good times.
0: Your whole childhood, you were through. You went through the depression.
1: Well, no, the depression didn't last. Well, last pretty much through my childhood. Yeah, from mm-hmm. even by 1941, when the World War II started, the depression was still on. Mm-hmm. Of course, it ended shortly after the uh, we got in through Pearl Harbor into the, the World War II, and then there were lots of jobs from that point on. At that point, I was still in high school, a freshman in high school. So the next four years, the, from, say, 41 to 46, when I graduated, my four older brothers were off in the war. I was still in high school, and my two sisters were gone. One of my sisters was in nurses' training, and the other sister was down in Panama, and my oldest brother who was married and couldn't be drafted, we had three children, he went up and worked on the Alaskan Highway, so our family was spread all over. I can remember very distinctly thinking I would probably never ever see my four brothers in the military again. Although fortunately they all came home. They all survived the war.
0: How old were you when Pearl Harbor was attacked?
1: I was nineteen forty one, I was thirteen.
0: And how would you compare that experience to 9-11?
1: 9-11 was on television, so that was a very distinct difference. I remember uh, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, I was uh, listening to a pro football game on the radio, and it came across on the radio, and, and one of my brothers was there. He was uh, at Wheeler Field, which is just north of Pearl Harbor on Oahu, in fact, Wheeler Field was hit first as the uh, Japanese planes came over the mountain. On their way to Pearl Harbor, the naval base, they uh, dropped their bombs, their first ones, and strafed Wheeler Field because we had about 100 fighter planes on the uh, airstrip, and they were all destroyed in just a few minutes. And my brother Dean was there in the barracks at that time. I was 13 at that time. I remember it very vividly. Comparing it to 9-11, 9-11 was, well, you saw it while it was happening. I I saw the second plane hit the tower. So so it was very traumatic, and I don't know. I I, I just don't compare it to Pearl Harbor. They're very different situations. Mm -hmm.
0: So what did you do after high school and the war?
1: When I graduated from high school in 1946, I enlisted in the Air Force for three years, primarily because there still wasn't much opportunity for a young guy getting out of high school with no money. I was a good student, but I never had any of my school teachers ever even suggest that I go to college, because in those days, you didn't go to college unless you had some money except for the fact that the G.I. Bill had been established, and I knew that, and it was still available in 1946. So I enlisted in primarily to get the G.I. Bill so I could go to college, see a little bit of the world, and maybe um, learn something that I couldn't learn just stay in a small town like New London, Wisconsin. So I enlisted. Didn't like the military at all after I got in. Was happy to get out a couple years later, With uh, although I got out with a slip disc, which took me to a military hospital in San Antonio, and I was discharged there on December 27th, I believe it was, 1947.
0: And what did you do after you got out of the Air Force?
1: I worked for a few months until the uh, spring term, or what would be would be the uh, fall term of school started and I went to uh, Lawrence College in Appleton Wisconsin as a freshman in that would be 1948 September 48 and I graduated there I spent 4 years at Lawrence got a degree in psychology with a minor in economics and graduated in 1952
0: and why did you choose those disciplines?
1: Why did I choose those disciplines? Well, probably because I had some questions about my own self that I was trying to answer, and I thought psychology would be a as good a discipline as any to uh, try to figure out, you know, the purpose of life and where am I going and what am I going to do, and and it seemed like psychology was a was a good choice. I didn't have any other field that I was vitally interested in, although after I took an anthropology course at Lawrence, I, if they had had a major in anthropology, I probably would have switched, but they didn't have a major. I could have pursued the hard sciences. I was pretty good in, in math and biology and the hard sciences, but I, I chose, I guess, what I would call the softer sciences of psychology and economics. Didn't have any real compelling reasons, uh, to be honest with you, at the time.
0: And what did you do after college?
1: Got my first job as a salesperson with uh, Yellow Pages, Telephone Directory Advertising, a company called the L.M. Berrien Company out of Dayton, Ohio. And I worked in Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin as a uh, salesperson turned out to be very successful at it. It was something I found out I could do very well. And within uh, 15 months, I was promoted to division manager of the company out in uh, Kansas City. They called it the Western Division. It was nine states, really Midwestern, but it was the westernmost part of the company, so they called it the Western Division. And I was there for seven years as the division manager. I might point out in the time probably one of the significant things that's worth saying about the earlier days, when I was a freshman, sophomore in high school, age 15 or 16, I began to wonder why all the killing was going on in the world, in the war, why Catholic Italians were killing Catholic Americans and Protestant Americans were killing Protestant Germans, and I thought where is religion in this equation? seems to be missing. So since there was nobody hardly left in the town to talk about it, I went to the library and read all the books I could get on religion, thinking I might find some answers. The upshot of it was I threw religion out the window and became an atheist, in fact, very anti-religious from that point on in my life, all the way through the military and the college and beyond
0: what was your parents disposition toward religion
1: my parents Mm -hmm. i grew up as a member of the methodist church i sang in the choir went to sunday school attended youth gatherings so it wasn't that i didn't participate i did and my mother went to church on whenever she could she was raising eight kids but she would go to church fairly regularly and take me as a child my father didn't do too much of church-going, although he was a very bright man as a printer and linotype operator. He was a what I would call a wordsmith. He really liked words and was always teaching me new words, but he wasn't too much for religion.
0: So what was your mom's reaction to you throwing religion out the window?
1: Well, she didn't like it. She thought I was being headstrong and that someday I would understand. She used to say that. Says, Kenny, boy, someday you'll understand. And, of course, I thought, well, my mother uh, and father both had only fifth-grade educations, and so I kind of didn't think they knew too much about what I was thinking anyway. I respected them both, particularly my mother, who was really Quite a saintly person. I mean, she was so kind and good. Everybody in the whole town loved her. Just She was just that kind of a person. Anyway, re- religion was out of the picture for me from about the time I was 16 until later on. And after I left the company that I was working with, the L.M. Berrien Company, after seven years I decided to leave them because, well, there were several things. They had done some things that uh, they had made some promises they didn't keep. And, of course, at that age, I thought I could, I could go any place and get as good a job and, or a better one. And so I left Kansas City and moved to Minnesota, Rochester, Minnesota. That was November of 1959. It wasn't long after I got to Minnesota that I met a person who was a Baha'i. At that point, I'd only heard the word once, and it went in one ear and out the other because I wasn't interested in religion.
0: What were the circumstances?
1: Of hearing about it? The first time. Yeah. Well, actually, the first time was in in Kansas City. My wife had gone to a luncheon meeting. I was a member of the sales executive and advertising club in Kansas City, and once a month they had a meeting for the wives of the members. She came home that night, She said she'd heard several speakers, kind of a panel, on different religions. And she said one of them that was really interesting was something called Baha'i. That was the first time I heard it. That must have been about 1957. And it went in one ear and out the other. Incidentally, I found out many years later who that person was that was the speaker. It was Margaret Rue, the wife of Dr. David Rue, who served on the... Universal House of Justice. In any event, to move along after I moved to Minnesota, it wasn't long after I got there that I met this Baha'i. Well, the circumstances were this: I was going to a chiropractor for my slip disc that I had picked up in the military, that was the cause of my discharge. I'd asked the chiropractor, "I said, do you know, do you have any patients that are interested in organic gardening?" because I was interested in that, and I, now that I was not traveling, I wanted to uh, start doing some organic gardening. He had another patient by the name of Vern Tuttle, who was interested in that, who was a manager out at IBM. I got Vern's telephone number and called him and asked him, I said, do you want to talk about organic gardening? And he said, sure. So we got together and talked about organic gardening. Well, Vern was a nice fellow, and he suggested that, he and I and our wives go out to dinner sometime, and I said, sure, we're you know interested in new friends. We've just moved here. So we went out to dinner one night. When we came back from the dinner, my wife said, did you know that the Tuttles are Baha'is? Well, Vern hadn't said anything to me, but his wife, Anita, had mentioned to my wife, Jeannie, that they're Baha'is. Well, that was the second time I heard the word, and I still... I knew it was something to do with religion, but I had no idea what it was about and, frankly, wasn't interested.
0: Your wife was interested?
1: Not greatly, but she just mentioned it. She didn't, but she didn't pick up on it and say, you know, let's find out about it or something. So it was shortly after that, maybe a few days, that my slip disc really slipped and I was zapped down on the floor for three weeks. I couldn't couldn't get up to walk for three weeks. I had to crawl every place. And during this time, the chiro- my chiropractor was coming out to uh, treat me three times a week. Well, apparently he must have mentioned it to Tuttle because Tuttle gave me a phone call, said he was sorry I was on the floor. Would I like something to read? And I know to this day if he had said something about religion or the Baha'i faith, I would have told him to get lost. But he didn't say that. He just said, well, i like something to read. And so I said, well, that's all I can do is lay here and read. Yeah, bring something over. So he didn't say what it would be about. He came over, and I'm not exaggerating. He brought a stack of books and booklets at least two feet high. (laughs) I had no idea what they were about. And after a little small talk, he left, and I just picked the book on the top and started reading and during the next three weeks, I read, I would say, on the average of 12 hours a day for three weeks. During that time, I read my way through that whole stack. When I got up off the floor and Tuttle found out about it, he said, well, I'm glad I was up and around. By the way, did, did you read anything? And I said, yes, Burn, I read it all. He said, you did? I said, yeah. He said, well, what do you think about it? I said, it's the truth. Is there something you join? And that's the way it worked for me.
0: So what was it that you read that turned, your, that turned you around?
1: Well, I remember several. I don't remember all of the books and booklets, but I remember a few of them. I remember Stanwood Cobb's Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which was an interesting treatise. I remember Renewal of Civilization by... Um, David Hoffman, I remember reading uh, Baha'u'llah in the New Era by um,
0: John
1: Ethelmont, the Scottish doctor. Those those were three of the things I remember clearly reading. It was when I was about halfway through Baha'u'llah in the New Era that I had what I guess you would call an epiphany, kind of that wow moment when you realize, wow, this is really, I've really found something. Uh, that important so I guess you'd say I read my way into the Baha'i faith at that point didn't have any chance to discuss any of it with anybody but by the time I get got up off the floor I knew I was a Mm Baha'i I might also point out that my wife Jean during while I was doing the reading we had three small children under the age of three with the fourth one on the way and in addition, my mother was visiting us during that time. So she's, Jeannie's not only taking care of me and the three kids and pregnant with the fourth, she was also entertaining my mother. But I'm trying to talk to her as I'm reading the Baha'i writings about the things that are interesting. And Of course, she's surprised that I found anything in religion that was interesting to me. And so she's getting interested. And she stays up till all the wee hours of the morning to do some reading. So she became a Baha'i at uh, the same time. Now, she came from an entirely different background for me. I mean, a different mindset. She was not agnostic or atheist. She grew up in a Danish Lutheran community where everybody in town was Lutheran. And so she belonged to a Lutheran church. She went occasionally. She felt that the Baha'i teachings were uh, true and the kind of teachings that we needed, particularly the elimination of all prejudices and recognition of the oneness of mankind and science and religion in harmony. So she sub- she felt that the teachings were true and we both became Baha'is in April of 1960.
0: How segregated was Kansas City at that time?
1: We lived outside on the Missouri side, outside of rural Parkville. Mm -hmm. And it was very segregated. In fact, the Air Force was still segregated when I enlisted in it. So, yes, Kansas City was very segregated.
0: What was your racial attitudes before you were a Baha'i?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. When I was in college, pre-Baha'i days in in the 1940s, I had pledged a fraternity, First of all, there were no black students on the campus, only a very few Jewish students, maybe a handful, and yet the fraternities and sororities both had conditions that no blacks or Jews could be members. I didn't know that at the time that I pledged a fraternity. And I found out a few months later, while I was still a pledge, and I went to the dean of students, and said, how come? I said, how come this wonderful liberal arts college has fraternities and sororities with these restrictive ordinances in them, no, no Jews and no blacks? And he said, well, in order to get the national charters, since they have ch- chapters all over the country, we have to take what's in their national charter. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I don't have to do that. And I said, I'd be pledged. Now that was quite a long time before the beginning of the civil rights movement, so that that represents my attitude, and it's a good question of why did I feel so strongly about it, because I I grew up in a town that had no blacks, two Jewish families, but prejudice was very strong. It was an anathema to me. I, I never never liked prejudicial attitudes and statements and feelings, and it's always been with me since the time I was very small.
0: So the principles of the Baha'i Faith then just reinforced your your attitudes?
1: Yes, uh, that's absolutely correct. The Baha'i Faith found me, I guess, more than I found it. I was somehow ready for it by virtue of a lot of the attitudes I'd already developed now there were there were some i had to change particularly on personal behavior i was a pretty pretty much of a big drinker being in the sales field and the sales manager and conducting sales meetings and that kind of thing and drinking was going on all the time and i was a pretty pretty good gambler i played a lot of poker in the military and won a lot of money and was good at it. And so when I became a Baha'i, I stopped drinking and I stopped gambling.
0: Was that difficult for you?
1: No. No, it was not difficult at all.
0: Once you became a Baha'i, did you see the effect of the being a Baha'i in your daily life?
1: Yes, because when I became a Baha'i, first of all, I in Rochester, Minnesota, I, I developed my own business. I had my own insurance business. After that, I went back into the Yellow Pages with another company, and I was, again, in the same kind of environment. But then, you know, I didn't drink, and my my manager became aware that I was a Baha'i, and that was why I didn't drink. I didn't make a big issue of it. I didn't say anything about it. I just, I just didn't drink anymore. And he, he thought, since I was the best salesman he had, he thought that was a pretty good idea, I guess. So he he was happy that I was in that kind of behavior.
0: Now, can you imagine what your life would have been if you had not become a Baha'i?
1: Well, I'd probably been dead a long time ago from cirrhosis of the liver or something, or um, a car accident, or who, who knows what. And maybe not, maybe it wouldn't have been. It definitely would have been different in what I spent my time time that I wasn't working at, because after I became a Baha'i in Rochester, Minnesota, well, for one thing, I immediately began teaching, trying to figure out how to put some intelligent presentations together and what the faith was about and sharing it with other people. So that started right away, in fact. My wife, Jeannie, and I, we had firesides every every Friday night for 26 years. And then I traveled around and did firesides elsewhere and did some teaching circuits and so on for the National Teaching Committee. And I traveled up to Canada, Saskatchewan, and Alberta in 1962 and spent seven weeks on the Indian reservations. After I got back from that, then... I'd go up north in Minnesota up to Red Lake among the Native Americans. And so there was a lot of that. I wouldn't have been doing anything like that if I hadn't become a Baha'i. So that definitely changed what I was doing. When I was also in Minnesota, in Rochester, I got involved with the United Nations Association because I felt uh, I knew what the teaching said about our, that we should support the United Nations. So I became a member of that, and the second year I was president of the association, and we were able to have Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt as our speaker for UN Day that year. So that was quite an achievement when you consider what a remarkable woman she was, that she would come to our small town and be our speaker.
0: I'm going to ask you an off-the-wall question here. You mentioned that you are interested in organic farming, that wasn't too popular an idea way back in 1955 <laughs> right. or 50, you know, 60. <laughs> you
1: got that right. In fact, I remember <laughs> if you ate yogurt back in those days, you were looked on as being kind of freakish. That, that's the way it was. I mean, inorganic gardening was just barely uh, breaking out because it had been so customary to pour chemicals on everything in agriculture. I had read some books in my pre-Baha'i days about the subject and was attracted to it as being very sensible, and that's why I was interested in it. So it's kind of interesting the way that my talking to my chiropractor about organic gardening led me to meet a Baha'i, Vern Tuttle, and his wife, Anita. Both of them have passed on now within the last year or two.
0: And Ken, what are you doing now?
1: I'm sitting here at Desert Rose Baha'i Institute, which where my wife Donna and I moved to about five months ago. It's a little Baha'i enclave between Phoenix and Tucson. It's where, after Bill Sears passed away, his wife Marguerite and her friend and mentor David Haddon, a Baha'i from Canada, found this piece of property and decided to develop it eventually to become a school for the arts. So we now have about, I think, about 25 people down here, living down here. So we have a nice little Baha'i community, and mostly uh, people about my age are a little younger, some a little older. We have some interesting things going on down here. So I'm just sitting here talking to you right now and looking at the sunset.
0: And what do you do there?
1: Next month, I'm 80 years old, so I decided I'm not going to try to do too much work anymore. I've been retired for quite a while. So my focus is entirely on teaching the Baha'i faith, which it has been pretty much for the last 48 years. Of course, most of that time I had to make a living, so I had to work, too. Uh, now I'm on Social Security and a little uh, government disability pension so I have time to devote to teaching. I I do some speaking in uh, world religion classes at the colleges and speak at firesides and talk to a lot of people one-on-one. Uh, my latest project is one that I started a, about two or three months ago. We call it the World Peace Movement It's distributing the DVD titled The Promise of World Peace, produced by a Baha'i in California named Cyrus Parvini. It's been out for about a year. It's been available in the Baha'i distribution and special ideas at $15 a copy. I worked out an arrangement with him that we could sell it for $5 if people bought 10 of them at one time. And so we had a booth at the Grand Canyon Baha'i Conference in December. We had about 450 of them there, and we sold out before the conference was over. So we now have about 140 Baha'is around the country who are are involved in our world peace movement doing this. The idea is to just give give these away to as many people as we can so more people know about the Baha'i plan for world peace, which, of course, baha'u'llah gave to the leaders of the world in eighteen sixty seven they proceeded to ignore it so we've had world war one world war two korea vietnam iraq one iraq two and god only knows how many more in the future until the leaders of the world take the plan seriously and do what baha'u'llah said which is to create a federation of the nations of the world so they can outlaw war as an instrument of nations' policies and make it stick. Of course, nobody's talking about it, and so my plan is to get people talking about it and aware that there is such a plan and how to implement it.
0: Maybe you can give us a little description of what this document, The Promise of World Peace, is.
1: Well, the document, The Promise of World Peace, of course, was a letter from the world center of the Baha'i Faith, the Universal House of Justice, the world-elected body. was a document that was written in 1985, and it was addressed to the people of the world. Interestingly, it was the first time the Universal House of Justice had addressed the people of the world. Up until then, they'd only been addressing the Baha'i community. But in this document, the address the people of the world. It's about a 24-page document, which I have had many people who are not Baha'is say is the most elegant statement on world peace they've ever seen. And it's very thorough and very complete, and something that every human being would do well to read. As a matter of fact, when the message was sent by the Universal House of Justice, They asked the Baha'is all over the world to distribute it as widely as they possibly could, particularly to people in leadership roles like heads of state, governors of provinces, governors of states, mayors, city councils, university presidents, anybody in a position to influence other people because they wanted everybody to know about it. In addition to those people, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of other copies were distributed to ordinary people like myself. Now that's what, 1985, that's 23 years ago. A lot of people became aware of it. I know it was sent to Gorbachev and the President of the United States and many other heads of state. That was still while the Cold War was going on, by the way. And we did see some significant changes after that. I wouldn't be so forward is to say that it was the result of the peace statement we know that a lot of those people received it so maybe it had something to do with the shift what i'm uh, somewhat saddened about is that 23 years later it doesn't seem to be as much in the consciousness of people as it should be i don't see any political leaders talking about the idea of a federated world system of governance to protect the human race from itself, which is essentially the idea that Baha'u'llah laid out. That's called the lesser peace when that happens, when when that becomes a reality. And it's the lesser peace because it's based on politics, political action, and it's based on fear, fear that we're going to destroy ourselves. And so that's a weak foundation for world peace, but it can at least eliminate war as an instrument of nations' policies, and buy the human race some time to continue to evolve and develop. And hopefully, as that time goes on, more and more people will become aware of who Baha'u'llah is, what he brings to the human race, because when the human race is attracted to Baha'u'llah's teachings, and they, and it becomes the point of unity for the human race, that will then move us toward what Baha'u'llah called the most great peace. And that's a peace that's based on unity and love, not fear and politics. So it's a a two-stage evolution toward world peace, the lesser peace and the most great peace. And this is all clearly spelled out in Baha'u'llah's writings, and ends the further amplification of his writings by Baha'u'llah's son, Abdu'l-Baha, who came to this country in 1912 and caused quite a stir, and then by the one that Abdu'l-Baha appointed as his successor, as the guardian of the faith, Shoghi Effendi, gives a lot more delineation and detail on how this will unfold and how what will be some of the components, so we have all of that prior to the establishment of the Universal House of Justice in 1963, who then, in 85, gave us this fuller statement, The Promise of World Peace. Now, the, the film, The Promise of World Peace, is obviously patterned after the statement. It doesn't have as much detail, because it's only a 27-minute film, but... And it's a it's a graphic presentation, which I hope to be able to distribute thousands of these around the United States and we've already made a pretty good start
0: you know what I found interesting about that statement it outlines the prerequisites for peace what yes th- it in a very succinct way, sort a bulletized list almost of what has to happen in order for there to be world peace. And the other thing I found very interesting was this concept that the world doesn't really believe that it's possible to have a world where there isn't war. And that, Well,
1: of course they don't believe it's possible because, one, they haven't seen it, and, two, all the people that they listen to, like their own religious leaders, their political leaders, even their educational leaders don't think it's possible. Well, if you don't think something is possible, and you teach other people, including your children, not to think it's possible, then why would anybody think that there would be people who think it's possible? Baha'u'llah, on the other hand, for 150 years, has been teaching the people that have paid attention to his message that it's not only possible, it's inevitable, because it's the next stage in the evolution of collective life on this planet. We'll, we'll either attain it, or we'll probably destroy the species. Because we certainly have the, the weapons to do that. It's curious, as a matter of fact, that it's been over 50 years since they've been used, those thermonuclear weapons. So there's, it's a tremendous educational problem that lies ahead and it has to begin in the classrooms of all the schools in the world. We have to begin to educate children to realize they're not only citizens of their town or their village or their city or their state or their country. They're they're citizens of all those things. But in addition, they are citizens of the world, of the earth and that they have to get into their mentality so that we develop a consciousness of, one, protecting this earth that we live on, and that we create social and political institutions that can protect us from ourselves. That's what it's about. There's a lot of people that realize that this would be a good idea. In fact, most people you talk to Even the ones that say, well, I don't think it's possible, but it would be a wonderful thing if it could be possible. I just don't think it's possible. Not many will then follow it up and say, well, give me the particulars. Give me the specifics. What kind of steps can we take to get to that goal? Well, one of the first steps we can take is begin to educate our children all over the world that they're citizens of the world. And what do you do as a citizen? Well, you practice good citizenship. We have citizenship classes for for nations and states. We just don't have any citizenship classes for world citizenship. It's a concept that Baha'u'llah clearly articulates in statements like the earth is one country and mankind its citizens. That's a direct quotation. Uh, Glory not in that you love your country, rather glory in that you love mankind. Those are direct quotations from the writings of Baha'u'llah 160 years ago. It's been around for quite a while. It's taking a long time to make it penetrate the consciousness of a lot of people, but that's because unbridled national sovereignty has made governments more interested in propagandizing their citizens than educating them. That has to change. And who's going to change it? Well, Baha'u'llah told us that too. When the leaders of the world that he wrote the messages to telling them how to establish world peace, when they ignored it in 1867, he then said power had been seized from the religious and political leaders of the world, and the power is given to the citizens to the common ordinary people. Well, the common ordinary people either don't know they have the power or they're not willing to exercise and utilize the power. It's probably a combination of both. I'm all for changing that and getting a grassroots worldwide thrust from common ordinary people telling their political leaders, enough, no more war. Here's a plan. If you don't have a plan, look at this one, because we have a plan. If you have a plan, we'll look at yours. In the meantime, why don't you look at this one and see what you think of it? So that's kind of where I stand right now.
0: It's interesting that you say that Baha'u'llah has taken the power from the leaders, and here we see the telecommunications revolution with cell phones and the Internet making it the great equalizer so that everybody has a voice in the world.
1: Well, sure. And just if somebody thinks that's accidental, they're entitled to think that. And, and probably very few would would be willing to acknowledge that this Persian saint of 150 years ago had anything to do with it all. But one can trace a pretty direct line and see, based on what Baha'u'llah said then, and what science has done since of course one of Baha'u'llah's teachings is the harmony of science and religion, and that these are just two different aspects of the same reality, two different ways of learning about reality. Science is a as we know is a system of evidence gathering to support a hypothesis, whereas religion is based on revelation that came through people like Moses and Buddha and Jesus and Muhammad and Baha'u'llah, where a direct intuitive awareness of truth was given to them. And that became encompassed in their teachings, which had a profound effect on multitudes. And, of course, the Baha'i view is that all of these great faiths are connected in a very real way, like different chapters in the same book or different teachers in the same school in that it's coherent and evolutionary and rational. Most people don't see religion that way. They see it as isolated, disparate, even competitive phenomenon. And so we've had centuries of hostility and war in the name of religion because people have failed to understand the unifying principles. But things are a-changing, so there's still hope.
0: And the other concept that's hopeful is this idea that we're an ever-advancing civilization, that we're going through a spiritual evolution, and we're at the turbulent teenage stage of our spiritual evolution as a world civilization, and that as time goes on, this civilization will mature and evolve.
1: Yes, that certainly is part and parcel of what Baha'u'llah laid out. Uh, and, and that is our responsibility. In fact, it's our purpose, collectively, as human beings, is to establish an ever-advancing civilization. Sometimes people talk about looking for their purpose and so on. Well, Baha'u'llah lays it out. Collectively, the human race has a purpose, is to establish that ever-advancing civilization. And people individually also have a purpose, and that is, to use their free will to develop their own virtues and to find something in life that they can do that will help advance this ever-advancing civilization. So that gives you an individual and a collective purpose. Unfortunately, a lot of the human race never discovers either an individual purpose or a collective purpose and a lot of their life is frittered away in inconsequential and counterproductive activity, both for themselves and for their community and for their fellow human beings. So we're in need of better education, and Baha'u'llah, one of the titles that Baha'u'llah has is the Educator of All Mankind, and since mankind right now is in a fairly sick stage, collectively, Baha'u'llah also is referred to as the physician for the entire human race, has his finger on the pulse, and prescribes the remedy for the ailments that affect mankind, which is essentially disunity. So it's quite a story well worth people learning more about. To anybody that's listened to this that might want to participate in this World Peace Movement, I can give you a website. We have a website called worldpeacemovement.org. I can also give you my email, which is kennethrjeffers uh, at gmail.com. And I, even better still, will give you my phone number because I like to talk to people, which is 623. Two six one seven five two seven. 7527 I can explain, I can answer your questions, I can explain in more detail what we are intending to accomplish with this world peace movement uh, that we have uh, started, and how it ties in with a lot of other things that are going on in the world that are very productive. So, And I thank you for the opportunity to be on your uh, program.
0: You're welcome, Ken. Thank you so much for taking the time. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ken Jeffers, an 80-year-old Baha'i who now resides at the Desert Rose Baha'i Institute and has just started the World Peace Movement Project. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
2: about the world at one
3: inside out. He's making his will made known. The time for peace is now. Leaders at the table talking about an end. Open